Welcome to Episode 6 of Shellshocked. This week, we'll be discussing the topic of secularism, and later, we'll have an interview with Catherine Dunphy, former Executive Director of the Clergy Project, as well as Mary Johnson, a former nun who worked with Mother Teresa for 20 years before becoming a non-believer. So settle in, and get ready to be unsettled by yet another episode of Shellshocked. the subject of this week's episode is secularism, Marilyn and I decided that we're going to do something a little bit different and personal this time. Instead of having a sort of preordained discussion about a specific topic, we're going to talk about us, and we're going to talk to each other and to the listeners about our own secular lives. So Marilyn, I'm going to let you get started. Um, are you a secular person? If so, why? And how do you think it affects your life? Okay, yes, I am a secular person, and um, thinking about this, um, I, I went back to when I first started being a secular person, and I remember it was in the seventh grade, and we were uh, talking about the atmosphere, and uh, I remember soon after that, I took a plane flight, and I was up, uh, you know, flying around, looking out at the sky, and I was thinking, wait a minute. This is where heaven's supposed to be. And, um, but wait, after this, there's the stratosphere. And then after that is whatever the next sphere is. And then after that, it's just space. So where can heaven fit into this? And it just didn't make sense to me. And I remember that was the first time that I was like, ooh, I don't know. It, if I really buy this. <laughs> so um, I think that was my aha secular moment of, hmm, I, yeah, no, I, I, this doesn't sound very good to me. Wow, you little critical thinker. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I think how it affects me is, uh, I think that being a secular person, at least for me, makes me much more tolerant of other people, of other lifestyles, uh, because I don't have any book or any person saying I'm better than someone else or that somebody's lifestyle is wrong inherently. Uh, I also believe that I treat everything equally, animals, um, people of all races, just because, you know, I don't think that, uh, like some religions preach, uh, you know, that man is uh, is the king of the kingdom, yeah. and he's over all everything like that. So uh, in those ways, I think that secularism really affects my life in how I treat and view the world. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, the paths that we end up going down. I don't know if you're like me. I was raised in a, in a pretty secular household. My father had some religious upbringing. My mother had very little, but I remember my mother sort of ruled the roost in our household and made the rules and did the discipline and all that. And her attitude was always one of utter uh, disdain for 
people who really believed in religious teachings and of course living here in the United States and being in California and they're from Oklahoma it was all about Christianity and I remember growing up and hearing her say to people you mean to tell me this person in this Bible lived to be 600 years old? Do you ever meet a 600 year old person? And so her <laughs> attitude was always just one of, are you kidding me? Like this is, these are stories. This is ridiculous. And so one would think all four of her children would grow up with that same secular attitude. I certainly did. My older brother and younger sister did, but my older sister is an evangelical Christian. Wow. And I wow. just look at her sometimes or think, well, I don't look at her much anymore because she's sort of dissociated from the family by choice and by our choice as well. And I just think, you grew up in the same house I did. You heard the same messages. What is so different about her as opposed to the rest of us? I, I don't know what that is. I mean, of course, I've tried to psych psychoanalyze the hell out of it over the years, <laughs> but I, I think it might for her boiled down to the fact that she's always been a conformist mm -hmm. and she's always had sort of this deep-seated need for people to accept her and to like her and that's something that I don't see so much in my other siblings or in myself of course we all want to be liked if we don't we end up you know up in a cabin writing a manifesto or something <laughs> and sending mail bombs to people but <laughs> but the need that really overpowering need is what I see in her and I think back to the research by people like Solomon Ash who did this famous study in social psychology, I'm sure, Marilyn, you're well aware of it, where there are these lines on cards, oh, and yes. people in the room are confederates. They're hired by the researcher to pretend to be other subjects, and they're giving purposely wrong answers. There's only one real subject in the room, and they're waiting to see if he or she will give in to the pressure in the room and start giving those clearly wrong answers about the lines on the cards and their lengths. Um, one of the reasons that people conform, Ash and others have found, is normative social influence. The idea that these norms, these rules for group behavior get set up. And then if you go against those norms, you take the chance that you'll feel like the other, the outsider. And some people proudly profess to be the outsider, but there are some people who just don't like that and they will give wrong answers just to fit in, even though they know they're wrong answers. And they'll say later on, it made me feel more comfortable. And I suspect that for many people, that's what religion does. It just makes them feel more comfortable, not just because they imagine an afterlife and a loving God and all that stuff, but it, you constantly feel like you're going against the grain if you're a non-believer, especially in this country. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I, I had the opposite um, upraising. Not that my mom um, is very religious, but we are Hispanic. And so um, actually my, my middle name is Guadalupe, and I got that middle name because my mom had uh, an illness while, I, while she was pregnant with me, and I could have been born blind. And she prayed to, to the Virgin of Guadalupe, and since I was born being able to see I was named after her wow yeah and so I always uh, grew up in a Hispanic family you know uh, with uh, always celebrating vir the Virgin Guadalupe Day um, I went through all the uh, catechism schools you know First Communion confirmation all that kind of stuff um, and so uh, 
it's it's interesting that I my brother and I are both pretty secular um, in a family that you know not overly religious but but definitely religious overtones throughout our lives and um, you know uh, it was I didn't get married till I was older and I was always seen as wait you don't want kids you're not married yet uh -oh. you're an old maid you know uh, so uh, those uh, kind of Hispanic overtones have always been over me and it's kind of interesting that I've turned out to be the nonconformist um, and you know not not in a rebellious way um, but I think just through like I said my critical thinking and just always asking questions wait that doesn't make sense you know why would you just believe that why you know why would you take somebody being 600 years old like your mom says yeah and and just go along with it you know it doesn't make sense does your family respect your beliefs or does it cause tension um I you know what we usually just agree to disagree mm. and we just usually don't don't bring it up um, you know, and I, I pretty much, uh, you know, my dad, every text or every phone call, you know, God bless you. Uh, and, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I don't have to tell you this. I'm sure you've been around in skepticism and secularism long enough to know this, but there are a lot of people who lose an awful lot more than you and I have when they come out as secular. And this week we had openly secular day that people were celebrating online and elsewhere where people were sort of coming out of the closet to use that phrase and and telling at least one person in their life that they're openly secular and to a lot of us who have been secular for most or all of our lives it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal but to some people it's a really profound and life-changing experience yeah, I, I can imagine every uh, quarter or semester when I teach, um, I always eventually tell my students, um, and I usually do it in the illusion, when we're talking about vision and we're talking about illusions, because my bumper sticker says atheist on the back, but it does so in a way that it's uh, it's an illusion, and so I say only, only the... Uh, the non-believers will really be able to see what it says and so I put it up there in my in my class and I say hey can anybody read this and somebody will eventually read read it and and be able to find it out and other people will never see it um, but that's usually how I I tell my students that I'm an atheist and I, I do it in a way because at that point in my class they've kind of gotten to know me a little bit yeah and I'm hoping to get them to okay here's this person she's normal she's nice and oh but wait she's an atheist and kind of getting them over that hump that a lot of people I think have this perception that atheists are evil and that they are you know bad people or something like that and so uh, that I can totally see how other people would be very nervous about coming out to their families you know or revealing what what their attitude and their belief system is it's interesting you have a bumper sticker that says atheist that's something that I've noticed a lot of secular people non-believers whatever they want to call themselves are kind of steering themselves away from and I'm sort of of two minds on this I mean on the one hand I understand that the word atheist has a connotation to it that it's almost like saying you're a communist or that you're a satanist or something um, and it doesn't mean that it simply means without religion mm -hmm. atheism 
but to a lot of people it has a deeper meaning and so you know half of me thinks we should stand up and fight for the word and and define it appropriately and make pe sure people understand what it means and then the other side of me understands people like the folks who want run the openly secular day campaign and they say let's just welcome people into the fold and let them know what we really are and they seem to be sending this message stay away from that word because that word means other things yeah um i i have the same kind of issue sometimes with um there's a the wearing that a on your shirt or you know um and i feel like that's kind of branding us in a in a wrong way you know um. i like i don't want to be branded like I have to stand out yeah uh, and so so I can see how you know I can see it in a good light okay you know here I am I'm an atheist there's I'm just like you um, and then the other side of uh, I have to show that I'm different than everybody else yeah so visibility is their exactly. purpose but right. the side effect of that is I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of some other symbols people exactly. were forced to wear in history, and so it, yeah, yeah. there's no, there's it's no it, well, and solution it, to this. And it's a red one. It's a red letter A, so it's the scarlet, the scarlet letter. letter, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that originated with the Richard Dawkins Foundation, if I'm not incorrect. Yeah, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Richard Dawkins is a divisive character in many ways too, so I'm not surprised. I have yes. great respect for him and his foundation. Um, I've been really concerned with some of the things I've seen come out of the secular world over the years since I've been involved with it. And, you know, one of the things that's happening is this kind of fracturing of the skeptics and the atheists. And I entered the fold assuming it was all kind of the same thing. Like, you know, I'm very open about the fact that I see all of this skepticism stuff through the mind of psychology anyway I think it's our game that everyone's playing maybe that's my bias but when you talk about things like belief or you know rationality and those kinds of things they're they're all purely psychological and I thought well what could be more purely logical and psychological than trying to figure out why people believe in gods when there's no good evidence that there are any gods and there have been so many etc but I've noticed that there are a lot of people involved in skepticism who just don't think that's appropriate. They think the question of whether there's a God can't really be answered. Uh, I guess that's the agnostic way of looking at things. And that we really should stay out of that game unless they make a claim. So if they say evolution's not true and here's a biblical explanation, then we should get involved as skeptics. Uh, or if they say, you know, gay people should all be arrested or whatever then, for religious reasons, then we get involved. But unless they're doing something and activating their religion, we shouldn't have anything to say about it. What do you think about that? Um, well, I, I think probably just like any other group, uh, you know, it's hard to, to have everybody think the same way. Yeah. Um, but I also believe that... Um, yeah, Yes, a lot of people have come out and said, you know, like you said, only if they're making claims do we uh, say something about it. And like you, I've always thought they're, you know, um, the same issue kind of thing. So uh, being skeptical means being skeptical of everything. Yeah. And it, that includes religion as well, you know, of always asking why, but wait, 
prove this or tell me the evidence for this and then and then I can buy into something um, but if I don't have any evidence for whatever it is then um, then I'm going to be critical of or think critically about it or be skeptical about it On the line with me now are Catherine Dunphy and Mary Johnson. Catherine is the former executive director of the Clergy Project, a group that provides assistance to members of the clergy who have lost their faith. And Mary Johnson, well, Mary's an author, she's a public speaker, and a former nun, but not just any nun. For nearly 20 years, Mary worked in the Missionaries of Charity, the religious order run by perhaps the most famous nun in modern history, Mother Teresa. Catherine and Mary, welcome to Shellshocked. Thank you. Great to be here, Sheldon. I think I'll start out with some questions for Catherine. Um, can you explain a little bit about the mission of the Clergy Project and how it operates? Sure. Um, well, I'll give you the background on when the Clergy Project was founded. It was in March of 2011, so it's a, a pretty recent phenomenon. Um, its mission is to uh, provide assistance to non-believing clergy of every persuasion. So priests and nuns, um, pastors, rabbis, imams, you know, anyone who is a religious leader who's lost their, well, I won't say lost their faith, who have gained their reason. Yes. This isn't an open group. It's by invitation, and there's a somewhat extensive interview process. What's the purpose of that, and how does it work? Well, um, I can't give too many details about um, how the process works, but the reason why there is an interview process is we want to vet the members to ensure that they first meet the criteria to be members, that they are either active or former clergy persons, um, and that they no longer believe in any supernaturalism. So no God, no afterlife, um, no devil, none of those things. And so... We do these interviews in order to assess that the person, you know, is in this predicament and that they're looking for help. So there is a, a, a serious concern about protecting privacy for members, <clears throat> which is why members are encouraged to have pseudonyms on the private form so they don't give out details of their location, what their real names are, so that they don't, there, there, it lessens the potential for exposure. And how did you first become involved in the clergy project? Um, well, I was there before the project existed. Um, this was back in January, um, was it Jan yeah, January 2011. Um, I discovered a research project that Linda Lascola and Daniel Dennett had uh, completed at Tufts University entitled Preachers Who Are Not Believers. And um, <clears throat> when I read this, I was over the moon, flabbergasted, because I didn't realize there were other people like me who'd gone off to seminary, who spent all that time and energy and money, um, and then came out and went, wow, I don't believe any of this. Um, and so I reached out to Dan Dennett, who put me in contact with Linda Lascola, and Linda said, yes, there are others like you, and um, we're thinking maybe something might happen at some point in the future, and there'll be a place for you guys to go online. And so... Um, I was in kind of a holding pattern for a couple of months, waiting to find out what was going to happen. I knew there were others. I wanted to meet them. I was excited to meet them. And then um, I got an email in March 2011 welcoming me to the clergy project. And all I really knew was that a group of atheist leaders 
had decided that they wanted to do what they could to help pastors and ministers and former religious leaders um, to find a place of sanctuary where they could meet, where they could talk and discuss really the challenges that you face when you go through this process of shedding belief. And one of the people who has shed their belief and has benefited from the Clergy Project is on the line with us, Mary Johnson. Mary, maybe we should begin with a little bit about your unique background. You can probably tell the listeners better than I can the story of how you became a sort of religious leader. Sure, Sheldon. Um, Well, when I was in high school trying to decide what to do with my life, um, I encountered this article about Mother Teresa in Time magazine, which started me on this journey um, to connect with this woman who was helping the poor and doing this amazing service. And rather quickly, I felt a call to to live as a missionary of charity in the community founded by Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I joined the Missionaries of Charity when I was just 19. I met Mother Teresa shortly after I joined when she was visiting in the South Bronx in New York where I started out. I lived as a nun for 20 years. I got to know Mother Teresa very well. I was I worked in the South Bronx in Winnipeg, Washington DC also, but 15 of my 20 years I spent in Rome and I had a really kind of close-up view of the workings of the church in Italy and the, the hierarchy. We had connections with the Vatican and I got to know Mother Teresa very well because she was she was often in Rome. And so that's the kind of the story of, you know, how I, <laughs> in the short, the short version of my religious life, I was a very trusted member of the community. I was entrusted with the formation of the sisters preparing for their final vows. I held that position for six years. I helped with the rewriting of the foundational documents of the community. Uh, when I left, I had a conversation with Mother Teresa that was really one of the most difficult of my life in which she told me that, she could have believed that anyone was leaving, but she couldn't believe it about me. Wow. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you wrote about this, uh, the entire story, in your book, An Unquenchable Thirst, which is a wonderful read, by the way, and explains pretty much your entire story. But unlike books by people like Christopher Hitchens, who sort of paint Mother Teresa as almost a, an immoral and evil sort of character, your portrait of Mother Teresa's in my opinion, more nuanced and complex. So if someone asked you today, who was Mother Teresa, what do you think your answer would be? Well, I think Mother Teresa was definitely the most focused, dedicated, self-sacrificing person I've ever known. She really gave herself wholeheartedly to this mission. Um, I don't believe she was the wisest person I've ever known. I think she surrendered most of her judgment to the church, actually. You know, in in, the, in this context of the discussion that we're having about the clergy project, I think it's very interesting to think about Mother Teresa because we learned after her death that Mother Teresa had doubts about faith, and she had them very early on when she started the Missionaries of Charity. You know, you can imagine this woman who had been headmistress of a girls' school in Calcutta, who had, you know, lived in an enclosed life in a convent for about 20 years, about the same time that I'd been in. And she 
felt that God wanted her to go out into the streets of Calcutta, something that no nun was doing at the time. Um, some of the girls who had been her former students came to join her. She's there meeting the poor on the streets every day, trying to do what she can to help them. She has really basically no material resources to do this with except what people happen to give her. And she begins to have all of these doubts, you know, as anyone in that situation I think would because you know, one of the big doubts about an all-loving God is when you're face-to-face -face with suffering all the time. How on earth could it, is this compatible with the concept of an all-loving God? And we learned that Mother Teresa had these sorts of doubts. But she didn't get the kind of response that people in the clergy project do, which is, you know, well, examine those doubts. See, see what you really think. You know, those doubts aren't something to be ignored. You know, instead, <laughs> Mother Teresa, when she spoke of her doubts to her spiritual directors, to the bishops that were that she worked under, they told her that she should, you know, just she doesn't need to think about those doubts. Her doubts bring her close to Jesus, who was suffering on the cross, who thought that God had abandoned him, and she just has to press on forward. And I think, if, you know, if Mother Teresa had had the clergy project. Perhaps things would have turned out very differently, and she could have used all of that energy and focus in a way which would have done more real good to the poor. Because, you know, when I say that Mother Teresa wasn't perhaps the wisest person, you're thinking of somebody who's working on the streets of Calcutta and throughout the world um, who says contraception is always morally wrong. You know, this doesn't make any sense what she had to do that because of because of the faith that she had where she surrendered her intellect if she'd been allowed to question she could have helped the poor i think in more um more really useful ways and you eventually began to question your own faith and you go into great detail in your book about that but did this happen as a lightning strike or was it a gradual process over time yeah, for me, you know, when I was with the sisters, I I really still believed in God. Of course, every now and then I'd have doubts, as anyone does. But just as Mother Teresa wasn't encouraged to look at her doubts, neither was I. And I didn't really have access to material that would help me. We had very limited approved books that we could read. We had no newspapers. We had no radio. We had no television. We had no contact with the outside world, which is, I think, really important for somebody who's going to grow intellectually. Um, we didn't have any of that. So when I left the sisters, I left because I felt I was suffocating personally, but I still believed in God. It was only afterwards with the distance and the perspective that I got outside the convent with allowing myself to think and entertain whatever thought came to my mind that I realized, well, yes, this is really something, you know, I need to reconsider. And I think when I read Sam Harris's The End of Faith, that was a big thing for me because I think it kind of gave me permission in a certain sense to really think my own thoughts about religion. And I think the doubts and the, the conviction and the giving myself permission to stop believing kind of dates from the, the reading that I did at that time. I'm sure that the psychological and emotional impact of losing your faith is is probably the, one of the most powerful things that could ever happen to a person. Catherine, mm -hmm. uh, there must be a really difficult thing for people to go through, and especially those ones who really don't have a choice, perhaps career-wise. They stay within their religion as religious leaders. 
Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's definitely um, it's a mountain to overcome. Um, I mean, like Mary had said, her she had doubts while she was still um, in the convent, but she needed exposure um, to other materials. Um, very often for members of the clergy project, well, myself it was a little bit differently because I was in seminary when I lost my faith, and it was the things that I studied in seminary that helped to contribute to the deconstruction of that faith um, and to the eventual shedding of it. Um, and for other members, I can think of one in particular who's been um, uh, public about his, his loss of faith. Uh, his name is Adam. That's not his real name. He um, wanted to be a better apologist, and so he thought, if I read, you know, some atheist literature, I'll be better at defending my faith. Um, but when he was confronted by this scientific language and by these thoughtful arguments, he realized he didn't have a leg to stand on when it came to his faith being um, truthful. And so that started the ball rolling. So for individuals, it's 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 like um it's like a death or a divorce, losing your faith. You're, there's this part of you. Your faith is a part of you. It's something that you cultivate and you take care of, or you you're you're prayerful or introspective about. And so when you lose your faith, it's like losing a part of you. And Mary and I had a really deep, long conversation at a conference a couple of years ago where we were kind of transfixed by just the memory of of, of that process of building faith, of cultivating, of caretaking it, uh, of discernment, all these words that are thrown around when it comes to being um, involved in a religious experience and cultivating a vocation. Um, so it's, it's shedding that is like peeling off a, a layer of your own skin. It's very painful, um, and it can have you know, wide-ranging impacts from someone losing their job, if they're working in ministry, or even if they're not working in ministry, if they're working in a really, you know, religiously volatile environment, they could have threats against them, they could lose their spouse, they could lose family members, uh, community contacts, and become completely alienated and isolated. So um, it's, it is a very, it's a really difficult journey, and I don't think anyone who started down that road out of faith has done it because it's made their life easier. They've done it because they have, you know, feel they've seen the truth and they can't abide by not being truthful or being honest with themselves. I, if I could just jump in for a second, because I think, you know, Catherine, what you said is, is really so powerful because you, it really is as though, you know, you're talking about shedding your skin I have another metaphor, too, because I once visited a butterfly research facility in mm. Costa Rica. And, of course, we all know the story about the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. But it's inside that cocoon, it's not just that the caterpillar loses a few feet and grows wings. But if you open that cocoon at a certain point, what you'll find is like caterpillar soup. What happens is yeah. that caterpillar dissolves into its most fundamental elements and then totally reconstructs itself. Um, and I felt like for me, this is what happened when I lost my faith because my faith had structured everything for me, my worldview, my life, my context, the people I met, the, you know, what time I got up in the morning and when I went to bed and what I did all during the day and the way I thought. And I was always talking to God all the time during the day. And it means that my whole life was structured around my belief in God. And then when I, 
when I abandoned deliberately that faith, you know, I was left without any structure. And I kind of felt like that caterpillar soup inside the cocoon and had to rebuild everything again. And I went through a period where, you know, nothing made sense. I knew I was on the right track. I knew I could not go back. I felt like I had seen the reality of the error of my ways. You know, <laughs> I was lost and now I see. But for me, it was, you know, when I left religion, that's that's really how I felt is I've, I've seen now and I cannot go back. But I didn't know how to go forward. And I think that the clergy project can be a big help with that because there you find all these people who've had the similar sort of situation. And we kind of can see that there is a way forward and can help each other through that process. Hmm. I never knew that about caterpillars. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at them at new res- with new respect. Isn't that astonishing? <laughs> But it is, like, knowing that, yeah, it is. It's like a reconstituting yourself from your core elements, like you've been disintegrated and rebuilt. You've gone so far as to devote your entire life to these ideals, and you're caretaking other people through that process as a religious leader. So, yeah, you're you're mushy and, and, and you know, minus a skeleton. <laughs> like, a, exactly. like, you're... you're you have to rebuild yourself again, and you know that includes all aspects from you know who you socialize with, you know how you how you think about yourself and your mortality and your family members and friends and you know who and also who you tell like who do you tell that oh yes i'm a i i just you know i'm a chaplain or I'm a nun, but I don't believe in God. Like, you, who do you tell that secret to? Mostly, you know, people would say, oh, well, to God, because that's, that, that's one way it wouldn't get out. <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to cover this topic of the clergy project, by the way, is to dispel a common myth that I keep seeing coming up in this discussion online. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, Catherine, but Albert Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the flagship school for the Southern Baptist Convention. And mm-hmm. he wrote an article about the clergy project recently, and here's a quote. He said, they, meaning all of you, want to use the existence of unbelieving pastors to embarrass the church and weaken theism. Okay. I haven't read that, but now I'm really interested because I, I wasn't waiting for them to make some sort of comment. I've been waiting for churches to line up and issue a statement about the existence of the clergy project, and this is the first I've heard of a, of a church deciding that they're going to speak out against the project. Um, and I'm not surprised by what he said, that, that we are trying to embarrass the churches. I don't think we want to embarrass... Um, anyone actually i think we just want to be able to speak our truth publicly and without without fear of any type of you know uh, consequence you know we don't want you know yeah people some people might think oh yes they're going to go to hell or they were never really believers or you know whatever excuses they might have um but i i think you know we make them afraid because we're like them and we're still like them in many ways um, I mean, I still think of myself as a very ethical and moral person. I still live by similar values that I had, you know, when it can't comes to social justice, when it comes to rights, when it comes to freedoms and liberties. I, I still live according to those those values. The ones that I've checked are the ones that diminished human uh, freedom, like rights on reproduction and women's rights. Um, those types of things, or gay rights, right? Those are the things that I said, you know, 
these are antiquated, old-fashioned ideas, and they don't make sense, um, and we shouldn't be institutionalizing them any longer. One of the things that I've noticed about members of the Clergy Project, and you can see this really clearly on the Clergy Project's public blog, which is um, Rational Doubt. It's not an official Clergy Project blog, but it's members of the Clergy Project um, who, who want to participate in some sort of public discussion about these issues. Um, have found this voice, and Catherine and Linda Lascola have been very instrumental in starting this blog. But one of the things that I notice about members of the clergy project on this blog, which makes it so different from um, many other atheist blogs, and which ties into your comments, Sheldon, about the Southern Baptist Convention you know, coming out against the clergy project, the thing that I notice is that clergy project members have a profound respect for religion. These are people who have given their lives to religion. They understand what it means to be a person of faith. They understand that there are benefits people derive from religion. They understand how deeply it is embedded in so many people's lives from you know the moment they're born that this is something that people grow up with. It's something that becomes part of the fabric of their being and that religion is, isn't something just to be mocked. Yes, it's something that needs to be examined. It's something which we need to look at rationally. It's something that you know deserves a great deal of, of study, but it's not something simply to be mocked. And I think that there are some atheists who haven't understood um, the value of religion for some people, and I think everybody in the clergy project understands that. Mm -hmm. And so what you find on this Rational Doubt blog, what you find is a discussion of religion and of doubt and of rationality that is extremely respectful of every human person and of all the people's experiences in religion and outside religion. I think it brings a tone, um, because these are people who have lived on both sides, who understand both sides, who can help unbelievers understand believers, who can help believers understand unbelievers. And that's a bridge that can be very difficult you know, to travel. A lot of times there's just this huge divide where believers and unbelievers kind of talk at each other, but nobody really understands what the other one is saying because sometimes they're speaking different languages using the same words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, the members of the clergy project know how to do that, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate so much about the Rational Doubt blog. <laughs> well, this has just been a fascinating discussion. I thank you both for being on the show. Um, where can people go to learn more about what you're both up to? Um, well, people can find me on the Rational Doubt uh, blog on the Patheos platform. Um, I'm also on Tumblr, and I should say, because it's um, very soon, I'm, I have a book coming out about the, the founding of the Clergy Project. Um, it should be out this July. Um, so they can everyone will be able to read the, the story about the founding of the clergy project uh, very very soon. Um, so that information is the the book is already listed I think on Amazon and it's called From Apostle to Apostate. Great. And Mary. And you can find me at um, www.maryjohnson.co. No M at the end, just .co. My memoir is called An Unquenchable Thirst, and it is the story of my time as a nun with Mother Teresa. I also work very closely with a group called A Room of Her Own Foundation that helps women writers. It's a fantastic group, and I was involved with the 
founding of that group. And you can find um, members of the clergy project continuing to talk about all of these issues at the Rational Doubt blog on Pastor. Great. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Sheldon. Thank you, Gail. <laughs>scientific studies of human behavior, it's often useful to look at the most extreme cases and then generalize to the wider public. If we're looking at something that cuts to the core of what it means to be human, then it's in the exaggerated case that we'll have the best chance of figuring it out because the root cause is often magnified. This is especially true in the bizarre and often mystifying area known as consciousness. Borrowing a phrase from physics, if you think you understand consciousness, you don't understand consciousness. We know a lot more these days than ever before about how the human brain works to create our sense of the world and ourselves in it, but even a cursory examination of the research quickly shows that we still know very little. What does it mean to be human versus an insect or a bat? What is the nature of a consciousness and how does it get created by the mass of neurons and their connections and biochemical interactions with each other? None of these questions has been fully answered yet, and they're not only important, but also at the very center of what it means to be us, and also what it means to be not us, to be other. As an example, I'll never be able to fully know what it is to be a religious person or a magical thinker. I'm simply not. And even back when I was bumbling around with the New Age claptrap, I don't think I ever fully believed any of it. That's quite different for a lot of people. Millions around the world report having experiences that, for them, provide irrefutable evidence of a connection to God, an afterlife, and a spiritual plane that they say is just as real as the one we all experience every day. So what are we skeptics to make of this? A lot of people simply take these stories at face value and sometimes even come to follow the people who have had these experiences as religious leaders or spiritual advisors. But why are these events taken so seriously in the first place? Shouldn't a first reaction be to try to understand why people have had these experiences? In other words, before we think in terms of otherworldly explanations, we need to eliminate worldly explanations. When Native Americans take hallucinogenic drugs like mescaline, they have wild mental and emotional experiences. But most of us realize that these drugs are affecting the brain and the way it functions. And this explains their so-called religious experiences. At one time, people even believed that dreams allowed you to enter an entirely different world, not imaginary, but an actual physical place. Of course, we now know that they're just the effects of normal brain function. So why should peak religious experiences be interpreted differently? Luckily, a lot of neuroscientists have started to offer alternative explanations that make a lot more secular sense. 
The basis for study of this kind began back in the 1950s when a Canadian neurosurgeon named Dr. Wilder Penfield made the first discoveries that would lead to an understanding of the role of the temporal lobes in certain types of epilepsy. He was performing brain surgery on conscious patients under the assumption that stimulating their brains in various areas and trying to trigger the auras that preceded their seizures might allow him to isolate the area causing the problem. Then it would be a simple matter of removing or destroying that part of the brain, thus eliminating the seizures. Not only did this cure some people of their seizures, as well as leading to a mapping of the areas of the brain that send and receive signals to and from the body, but it also led to a fascinating discovery about the temporal lobes. By stimulating the temporal lobes, the lower parts of the brain on each side of your head near your ears, Penfield found that he could elicit in his patients meaningful integrated responses like memories, sounds, movements, and even visual experiences of colors, objects, and people. Penfield's work showed the first clear evidence that the temporal lobes were special in that they could elicit very powerful and profound psychological and emotional experiences in people. But of course, most of us never ends up on an operating table with his or her brain exposed and prodded with an electrode. A more common experience that mimics Penfield's patients in many ways comes from certain types of seizures. In a manner of speaking, seizures are a natural, albeit abnormal, firing of electrical signals in certain parts of the brain. These neural storms can cause a number of effects, including loss of motor control, convulsions, loss of consciousness, and even death. But in a milder form, known as partial temporal lobe epilepsy, or TLE, the effects are much smaller and can have a strange side effect that's very reminiscent of Penfield's work. With partial TLE, people generally have only small outward signs that a seizure is even taking place. But from the inside, as they look out and experience the world around them, something very significant is happening. They can be taken over by an unimaginable feeling of exaltation and revelry. They often have feelings of openness with the universe and a sense that they've now put all the pieces together. All the mysteries of the world have suddenly been solved and many feel the presence of God. A man named Richard recently posted online asking for information and advice about a seizure experience that was almost certainly a partial temporal lobe epileptic seizure. Here's how he described it. I awoke after a couple of hours of normal sleep and spent the next four or five hours fully conscious and mostly coherent, speaking intelligibly and responding with correct answers to questions posed, but also convinced that I was about to die of a heart attack and ready to do so because I was communicating with God and Jesus, and I knew I was going to heaven. Richard is just one of millions of people who have had these experiences. Zach Ernst, an atheist and professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri who specializes in logic, says that the only way he can accurately describe his seizures is by calling them religious experiences. He had seizures with paranoia and unpleasant hallucinations for years, and then suddenly they changed. They became experiences that were filled with beauty, ecstasy, and feelings of having a sense of God and oneness with the universe. He believes some sort of experience like these must have been behind the history of religious experiences reported by mystics and others for thousands of years. In fact, if we look at the book of Acts in the Christian Bible, 
there are two sections that talk about Paul's conversion. They're both pretty short, but each contains elements that some say support a TLE interpretation. They describe Paul falling to the ground and experiencing a blinding light, then hearing a voice claiming to be Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. After this, Paul is said to have lost his vision and lost his appetite for three days on the road to Damascus. And when it was all over, Paul was a devout follower and missionary of Christianity and exhibited a religious fervor and a sense of purpose that we see repeated by zealots over the centuries. Auditory hallucinations of voices, visions of divine figures, and physical collapse are all common elements of TLE, and they're especially common in documented cases of sudden religious conversion in people with temporal lobe epilepsy. Research has shown that your upbringing often dictates how you'll interpret the reality of these seizure experiences. People not brought up in religious households tend to view these as profound and life-altering experiences, but they don't interpret them as religious experiences. Think of the visual pareidolia, where we see nothing but the religious person sees the face of Jesus in a mold stain on the wall. Interestingly, Neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran at UC San Diego has shown that those with partial temporal lobe epilepsy may still be affected in a spiritual sense by their seizure experiences. In his research, even the non-religious with partial TLE showed more of a galvanic skin response, which measures emotion through micro-sweat gland activity, to visual imagery of a religious nature than the non-religious without partial TLE. In other words, whether you believe these experiences are real or not, partial temporal lobe epilepsy still apparently makes people measurably more spiritual. Of course, some people will never be fully convinced by these small findings that what they and others have gone through isn't somehow a sign that God is real. But, if in the future researchers were able to somehow provide a physical, biological explanation for all spiritual experiences, would that finally put to rest the notion of an afterlife and a god? Probably not. Even psychologist William James himself argued that religious states are not less profound simply because they can be induced by mental anomalies. He said, Even more perhaps than other kinds of genius, religious leaders have been subject to abnormal psychical visitations. Invariably, they have been creatures of exalted emotional sensitivity, liable to obsessions and fixed ideas, and frequently they have fallen into trances, heard voices, seen visions, and presented all sorts of peculiarities, which are ordinarily classed as pathological. To plead the organic causation of a religious state of mind in refutation of its claim is quite illogical and arbitrary, because if that were the case, none of our thoughts and feelings, not even our scientific doctrines, could retain any value as revelations of the truth, for every one of them without exception flows from the state of the possessor's body at the time. So if that's the case, if we'll never fully convince people that spiritual peak experiences are not real, why continue their study? I suppose it's because, at its core, the human experience is a shared one, and the more we understand about the human mind, the better we'll understand each other and ourselves. Have you heard the good news? Now here's
something we hope you'll really like. This is Marilyn, and I'm bringing you the good news. This week, I thought I'd bring you two reports involving a former Baptist pastor, Drew Bacchius. The first report details the story of his journey into atheism that he shared earlier this month on the Clergy Project website. The second report details the story Bacchius shared on his blog about his daughter's class discussion on atheism. Bacchius was raised in a small Baptist church in small-town central Minnesota. He prayed the sinner's prayer a prayer of repentance, when he was just three years old. Somehow, spontaneously finding themselves in the bathroom, he prayed that prayer with his mother, kneeling over the bathtub's edge and repeating her words as his own, confessing his preschool sins while asking Jesus to come into his life and grant him the forgiveness he was told he had so desperately needed. From there, it was a childhood of Sunday schools and Awana programs of youth groups and Bible studies. But it was in the summer of 1994, the one right before his freshman year of high school, where his faith began to take shape beyond what he saw in his church peers. That summer, he attended a Youth for Christ conference in Washington, D.C. It was billed as a peer evangelism super conference, equipping people with everything they would ever need to win all their friends for Jesus. And yes, he ate it up, every moment of it, the proverbial hook, line, and sinker. He came back from that conference and started what would become an award-winning ministry initiative in his public high school, his first steps towards winning the whole world for Christ. Devoting his teen years to the Lord's work, he jumped at every chance he could find. He volunteered as a junior counselor at Bible camp each summer. He was trained by the Billy Graham crusade and served as a floor counselor when the good reverend came to Minneapolis in 1996. Billy Graham is an American evangelical Christian evangelist who holds what he calls crusades at which he preaches the gospel and invites people to come forward to accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Beckius preached his first Sunday sermon before the whole church at the age of 17. And all of this while he was just in high school. So, of course, it only made sense to enter Bible college. Following graduation, he packed up and left a small town, central Minnesota roots behind, and moved to the big city of Chicago, where he attended the Moody Bible Institute, completing both a BA in pastoral studies and a Master of Divinity degree. Along the way, he pastored at two churches for a total of 12 years. After this, he served as lead pastor for a turnaround church associated with Converge Worldwide. Beckius loved pastoring and couldn't imagine doing anything else. The preaching and teaching, the organizational development and community service, the life coaching, even the hours-long board meetings. It was everything he had ever wanted professionally. And yes, also loved the faith that served as its true foundation. He had embraced an incredibly positive and constructive, empowering and motivational, non-judgmental, non-critical, forward-thinking, and hope-filled version of Christianity. Yet, it was thoroughly evangelical in the sense that he believed every word of the Christian Bible was inspired by God and therefore inerrant. With an unquenchable passion for God's Word, he sought to grow in its knowledge and understanding every single day. Study was his daily hobby. 
But then, in the fall of 2010, he began to realize that some of those answers didn't line up as well as he would have liked them to. And as he started dealing more critically with some of the issues he had previously pushed ever so slightly to the periphery, he began to find himself a little less satisfied by answers previously held. And that's when it all began to unravel. Over the next six months, he found himself increasingly overwhelmed with doubts that went as deep as to the very existence of God himself. His prayers that God would faithfully correct his thinking and strengthen his faith gave way the following year to late night sobbing prayers, begging and pleading with the God of wonders to reveal himself to him once again, to light his heart and soul aflame with his spirit once more. I'm going to quote the following passage in his words because of its beautiful prose and imagery. But my faith was proven a mere sandcastle on the shore of my soul, a majestic glimmering creation about to be ransacked by impending waves. Though I diligently scooped it up in my arms of rescue and ran in search of high ground, the more frantically I struggled to hold it together, and the closer I buried it to my chest, the more its sand slipped through my fingers until I held nothing more than a few of its barren grains. And soon even those would escape me. I love that passage. By the end of 2011, it became clear that he had to transition out of the ministry he had loved so dearly. Even if God were real, and he continued clinging to the hope that he might be, he had clearly lost all ability to discern such truths. Either Christian ministry was unfit for this world, or he was unfit for Christian ministry. But either way, he had to leave. And so he did. He transitioned out of ministry that following summer, and by the end of that year, he would finally admit to himself that he no longer believed in God. He had to let it go, if for no other reason than to keep his own sanity. It wasn't until July of 2014 that Beckius discovered the clergy project, a full two years after leaving the ministry. Even though he had known it couldn't actually be the case, he had often felt as if he were the only Christian in the world who had lost his faith and he had never even heard of another pastor doing so. But in the clergy project, he found something of which he was long in need, a sense of community and network of support with other religious professionals traveling on journeys similar to his own. And in seeing and hearing their stories, he found a renewed sense of hope for the future. Everything was going to be okay. This newest chapter of his life was only beginning. Beckius finishes off his story by saying, Today, I am alive and well. Life is exciting and increasingly filled with wonder and joy. Though divorced in 2013, my children continue to be the love of my life. Back in 2012, I was able to maximize a connection that landed me a great job as the customer service manager of a downtown Chicago steakhouse. Now, active with a variety of organizations, I work with TCP Communications, am an active volunteer with the Freedom From Religious Foundation's Metro Chicago chapter, and just received an endorsement as a humanist celebrant with the American Humanist Association. I blog regularly, and I am currently finishing my book, The Rise and Fall of Faith. Life is full and ever-flowing. It is good, and I am alive. And as I often like to remind those around me, I've found life to be incredibly more joyful without Jesus. A very inspiring and touching story, but it doesn't end there. As I said in the beginning, the second story involving Beckius involves his sixth grade daughter. Beckius has a blog at drewbeckius.com, and his latest blog post is titled, Your Dad's a What? 
the day my daughter's class discussed atheism. In this post, he writes that he is thankful that atheism in America is becoming less taboo and beginning to sound a little less scary. And he is also thankful for a particular sixth grade teacher who was willing to speak honestly and openly about it. In a week of March 2015, he was told, during a new social studies segment on world religions, that class discussion turned to the topic of atheism. The teacher explained to her suburban Chicago classroom of 11 and 12 year olds that though Christians win most of the headlines in America, there are actually a lot of atheists here as well. And it was here where she asked her students how many of them personally knew of someone who is an atheist. As a small scattering of cautious hands slowly drifted upward, Beckius's daughter surveyed the crowd around her and thrusted her arm into the air. And of course, the teacher called upon her, no doubt sparing those more hesitant in their hand-raising, in order to focus on the one student noticeably not embarrassed. Calling upon her, the teacher asked his daughter about who her atheist friend might be. Well, my dad is an atheist, she said, then scanning the room with the smirk of gossip on her face. A few gasps fluttered through the class while one of the girls turned to his daughter and spat in her direction. Your dad's an atheist? With a face of abhorrent disgust. Beckius notes that his daughter paused her story to tell him why this particular classmate's opinion means nothing to her. I like this girl. As the teacher continued, she asked if anyone knew what the top five most popular religions in America were. The first student, of course, correctly noted Christianity. The second offered atheism. And here, in another beautiful moment of diligent education, the teacher stepped to clarify that atheism isn't actually a religion. An atheist is a person that doesn't believe in gods or religion. Almost by definition, they are someone without religion, she said. After class, one of her friends ran to catch up with her and ask more about her father's atheism. But why? She just couldn't understand why somebody wouldn't believe in God. What was wrong with him? So she told him about how her dad used to be a Christian pastor, but that eventually he just realized that it all seemed to be made up. At which point, her friend looked both surprised and relieved. Oh, well, if he used to be a pastor, then it can't be that bad. And then the girls ran off to lunch. This story made Beckius's day and made my day for a couple of reasons. First, that his daughter, who grew up in a Baptist church where her dad was a pastor and who knows the Bible better than most adults, isn't ashamed of her father, that she actually supports him and that he could see her overflowing pride. A good many of his fellow colleagues don't have it as good as he does in this regard. Secondly, that his kids are in a school system, even all the way out in the right-wing suburbs of Chicago, where they have a social studies teacher who isn't afraid to speak honestly and truthfully about atheism. This, of course, doesn't mean she's actually an atheist. She also spoke honestly about religious systems as well. It just means that she's a professional whose lessons are steered by facts, rather than personal bias. He wishes we may find an increasing amount of this kind of level-headed educational integrity in America in the coming years. He wishes we may find the stigma of atheism erased, and he wishes that reason and rationality win the day. Cheers to that. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shell Shocked. If you haven't already gotten your tickets to Skeptical this year, and you'll be in the Bay Area on Saturday, June 6th, be sure and check out our website at www 
www.skepticalcon.org. Early bird ticket prices end May 1st, so you'll want to get there fast. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, you've been shell-shocked.